This morning we'll be in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had taken, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Skip down to verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The word of the Lord. When I realized when I sent Justin the sermon title, I saw that it wasn't original. I had used it before. I want to title this sermon in our exchange, God, period. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for your spirit. It's with that spirit that I pray for and ask for preaching power, that whatever is not of you would fall off in these moments and that your word would fall on good soil, that it would refresh our souls, make us anew. In Jesus' name, amen. The human appetite longs for grandiosity and glory. The desire for bigness and beauty is inherent in you and me, whether consciously or subconsciously. You spend most of your moments in life searching and hoping for something bigger, something better, especially in moments of discomfort in moments of despair, in moments of disappointments. To her family, she is known as Lilibet. To modernity, she was known as Elizabeth Alexandra Mary. You know her as the late Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom. Her reign spanned 70 years and 214 days. And this would make her the longest British monarch in its history. 
I wasn't there that day, and I'm sure most of you weren't. She was only 25 when she was pronounced queen. Millions had gathered remotely and physically to witness the coronation of the next person to sit on England's famed throne. England had just lost their beloved King Edward, her father, and to much of Europe, glory had just died. There she was that June 2nd day of 1953, being ushered to that throne, resting in the midst of Westminster's Great Hall, draped in heavy, fine, and ornate clothing, Elizabeth walked ever so slowly to her destiny, her purpose, dare I say, her calling. Every eye in the room and abroad fixed upon her every step. Clothed in a white dress, jewels and pendants of earth's finest treasures hanging and resting upon her person. Gold dripping from her chest, from her ears, her wrist, her arms. And as she passed each staring pupil, spectators would then witness the great robe of state left in her wake. It would leave a trail of awe for her audience. It's a six-yard long, hand-woven, silk Velvet cloak lined with Canadian ermine. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> it would require the assistance of seven maids of honor to ensure she and her robe would make it to the throne. Hymns were sung. Prayers were prayed. Communion was given. This was a worship service after all, and according to London, this was God's person in God's seat. Glory had risen again. Now, I'm sure many of you are sitting here this morning and asking the question, what does England and their king or queen have to do with me? What's the big deal about a queen or king who's really not in charge? Or, or maybe you're thinking, why are so many across the world so invested in this antiquated and out-of-touch tradition? See, Elizabeth's late mother is a kind of door into the human heart. When she captured this sentiment, she says, the throne of England gives the people an ideal to strive for. It is their great hope while living ordinary and plain lives. In other words, the monarch exists so that people can see and feel glory in their miserable lives. Mm. But I got to wonder, what happens when that great hope dies like she did last year? What do you do when over and over someone else takes up residence in that old seat? What happens when that glory and dominion becomes smaller and smaller, more irrelevant as the years and decades and centuries go by? Friends, that's the question that lifts off the pages of Scripture and presses you and I this morning. What is it about earthly thrones that have you and I so enamored 
so invested, so enchanted with their narratives. Sure, it may not be the throne of England for you, but I know some of us, it matters who takes up residence at 1600 Pennsylvania. There are others of you who are so enchanted with a throne called the New York Stock Exchange. For others, it's sexual intimacy that provides the quote-unquote fully loved and fully known, no matter the cost. You know what your thrones are. And I know the basis of my argument is standing on sufficient ground because this is the very social and historical and theological predicament of Isaiah 6. Before there were modern queens and kings and potentates, there was God's own theocracy. Here it is, verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died. Oh, I, that ought to wake some of you up this morning. If you know anything about Israel's history, then you may recall how we have come to this point in the story. Oh, those Israelites and their wisdom. They had drunk the cultural Kool-Aid. Instead of God being sufficient to be their king, they wanted to be, their, be like their pagan neighbors. They wanted a throne that they could see and touch and covet like everyone else. See, folks have been keeping up with the Joneses before you and I. They've always been looking side by side and comparing their life and their circumstances to one another. After all, comparison is the thief of joy, or so they say. You know the story. First it was Moses, but he wasn't good enough. Then along came Joshua, but they still wanted something more. So they petitioned God, Lord, Lord, send us a judge that will rule over us. Come here, Samson and Gideon and Ehud and the like. Lead us into prosperity and national security. Judge after judge after judge. Failure and unfaithfulness was the repeated cycle. Okay, okay, Lord, that didn't work out, but I think we've got it. Here it is, here it is. Give us a king. Yes, give us a king, a throne. Give us a throne, Lord. We want something physical to worship. It will make us like those folks down the road. You know what's synonymous with the thrones of Isaiah's day and our 21st century thrones? They always become empty. There is constant transition. Constant scandal, constant inadequacy. How do I know this? In the year that King Uzziah died. To you and I would do well to feel the heaviness of these words. It ought to remind you that all things and all people are death eligible. Everything around us has its own expiration date. Monarchs. Governments, billionaires, CEOs, influencers, and all in between will someday have a date with death. There is nothing under the sun that remains forever. And friends, I got to tell you, that includes you. 
That's what we come to learn from Isaiah chapter 6. See, this text is tailored to show you and I that your longings for transcendence, for glory and beauty are not the problem. No. See, the problem is that you are looking in all the wrong places for those answers. You have hopes that are meant for the divine audience and not earthly ones. In other words, you are right to desire glory. You are right to wonder for all. You are right to yearn for beauty. You are correct in wanting more for you and those around you. But the fact that your soul has yet to be quenched points to something being amiss. That's where we find ourselves situated here at the onset of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. It comes at a time in Israel's history in which they, along with their kings, they too were looking for divine solutions in all the wrong places. There was a kind of hole in their wholeness, or might I say holiness, prosperity, political peace. And social stability had atrophied their spiritual lives. In a word, God had become boring. Better yet, life with God had become insufficient for some, non-existent for others. Kings like Uzziah had done what was right in their own eyes. And now judgment was about to roll down upon Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And right on the heels of death, God sends Isaiah a vision of Israel's faith. But notice what Isaiah sees first. The Lord seated on high in lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the earth. Friends, this is power. This is glory. This is beauty. This is the Holy One of Israel. It's what scholars call the transcendent God. And it was just another day. It was just another day in, in the neighborhood for old Isaiah. His routine this day was no different than in any other. There he is walking out of his condo downtown like any other day. He kissed his bride goodbye like any other morning. He made his rounds giving counsel and wisdom to religious and civil magistrates. Can't you see him? Notepad in hand, Middle Eastern coffee in the other giving direction, taking notes, being amongst his people who have become apathetic to their God. Can't you see him, church? The same God that had come through for them time and time and time again. Oh, isn't it interesting how fast our minds run ahead of our memories in the goodness of what God has done in our life? Did we not did, did Isaiah's folks not remember what Moses had done for those people when Pharaoh was chasing them down the road, when he split the seas and made a way when there was no way? Did, did, did they forget that 
as they gallivanted and, and, and trounced and pounced upon the wilderness, that they had food every day, that they had a place that laid their heads. God had provided for their need time and time again. Oh, how fast we forget. We forget that we woke up in a nice warm bed. We somehow lose memory that we were able to use our limbs and legs and put on clothes and breathe in fresh air. Oh, how fast we forget that in your worst hour, in your difficult circumstance, God has always seemed to figure out how to pull you through. The wealthy among Isaiah have built their own cathedrals. The civil leaders have carved their own thrones. All while the poor wander to and fro along those dusty Judea roads. Oh, but, but, but there Isaiah is going about his business and all of a sudden he is stopped dead in his tracks. He's swept up in a moment's notice and all he can see is a bright shining light, the, the silhouette of a being so majestic and glorious. It is unlike anything or anyone he has ever encountered. Angelic-like creatures buzzing and flying all around, singing the perfect tune in unison. There he is, eyes wide, mouth to the floor, body paralyzed at what he's looking at before him. Old Testament scholar Gerhardus Voss, oh, you got to love those names, said this about Isaiah's experience. It is safe to say no other pagan in Isaiah's day has ever looked upon their version of God in the same manner that Isaiah looked upon his when having this vision in the temple. That is to say, no one can show up the way God can. No other God or entity can demand such an audience. And when he does show up, holiness is what you get on full display. See, when we humans consider the category of holiness, we tend to think in the vein solely of purity or, or moral perfection. See, while that may be true, and it is, the sense here is one of complete and utter distinction. Language cannot name it. Concepts break down trying to describe it. God is making it known to Isaiah that he is unlike all of creation. Good luck trying to find a comparison. See, God is so much of God that the, when the Bible says that the hem of his own robe cannot be contained. Friends, I don't know about you, but, but a hem is maybe this big. You've got jackets and clothes on and, and pants. Look at your hymn. See how tiny that is? God's hymn filled up all of its real estate. A piece of his clothing could not be contained. We haven't even got to his person yet. And here you thought that the robe of the queen was something. Here we have a king whose own clothes cannot be contained. Heavenly creatures cannot bear to lay their eyes on him. Why? Because he's holy. 
holy, holy, holy. Before God even says a word, moves a finger, gives any direction, God wants Isaiah to know whom he is dealing with. So much of what is about to happen to Israel is predicated on the character of God rather than the actions of God. See, I thought that would catch a few of you because what I just said was a mouthful. See, God's holiness is not simply an attribute or one of his many traits. No. See, God's holiness is his very person. It's the essence of his being. Meaning whenever he shows up, you get all of this on display every time and everywhere. You don't get some of it. You don't get most of it. You get all of it. And I labor here because this is a side of God that has lost much traction in our day. See, I miss those times where we would actually put respect on God's name. Where folk would talk about God in a manner that was worthy and high and lifted up. And I know, I know we live in a modern, sophisticated world. And, and, and we try to be cool and nice when we talk about God. But there's something about God's presence that demands honor, that demands a worthiness and a reverence and a respectfulness. I remember in that church I would grow up in, we would sing songs like, there's nobody like you, Lord. Ain't no one like Jesus. It would remind us of, of how infinite the chasm was between we, the creature, and he, the creator. And this begs the question, when was the last time God's transcendence and holiness was your sole reason for trusting him? What is holding you back from trusting someone so perfect, so infinite? I would hazard to guess that one of the reasons is your skepticism, your doubt. Your doubt of anything being so perfect. Because perfection has been overpromised in your world. And the thought of believing in it again is too painful. Every day, all we hear is how good life can and will be. All the things that are offered and promised you that will make your life better. And then time and time again, disappointment, despair. See, friends, I think when you encounter something so different, so other than, someone so unlike anything on earth, so powerful and holy like God, you, be quick, you quickly begin to realize everything he is while simultaneously seeing everything you're not. That's good news, friends. Why? Because, because seeing God for who he is tells you something is wrong about you. Notice the first words of, out of Isaiah's mouth. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and live among an unclean people. 
Isaiah didn't praise. He didn't sing. He didn't even keep silent. All he could utter is woe. Woe is me. Isaiah opens his mouth and confesses. He, he acknowledges that he doesn't belong in God's presence. He instantly becomes self-aware and bows his head in humility. Notice the vulnerability on display. See, the idea of being ruined here in the original language reads more, it, it, it's more like to be destroyed. Isaiah is literally being undone in the presence of God. He, he understands that he should be non-existent in the presence of God because that's how holy God is. He's so holy that he can't even be around non-holy things. This is what humility does. It leads us to honesty. It really is the only proper response towards God's holiness, but, but we're human. And what is proper is not always natural. See, there are two barriers in front of you and myself when it comes to humility. On the one hand, there is fear. Fear has a way of telling you that honesty leads to pain. The moment you open up is the moment you regret the decision. Fear says to you and I that humility leads to shame. To be vulnerable is to render oneself unsafe. But on the other hand, there's something called pride. And after all, to be human is to struggle with pride. Aquinas calls pride a lack of submission to God, therefore the beginning of all sin. Pride has a way of putting up blinders so that you can't see you for who you truly are. See, this was the case of old, that, that old guy, Oedipus Rex was his name. Famous ancient Greek drama character. His tragic flaw in life was that of pride, hell-bent on finding out who killed his predecessor as king. Through a series of unfortunate events, Oedipus comes to find out that he was actually the culprit after all. That would be the force that would compel him to blind himself via nails after finding out he murdered his own father and married his mother. Oedipus's pride couldn't allow him to see the folly of his own hands. As the proverb writer says, pride always cometh before the fall. See, both of these narratives have a way of seeping into your minds and your hearts and attaching themselves unto your view of God. But when you place those narratives in front of God's holiness, they come back void. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that, had taken, that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed. Your sin is atoned for. See, God's holiness, holiness doesn't just point to his transcendent power. No, it also indicates that his holiness is compassionate. 
While he overwhelms you in his presence, he invites you in it at the same time. It's in his presence alone, alone where you can be fully undone and put back together at the same time. When Isaiah says, woe is me, God doesn't flinch. He doesn't move away. He, he doesn't even ask a question. He immediately covers Isaiah's sin. I can't chase it how I want to, but when you become self-aware and honest with your sin, God does what he does best. He saves. He forgives. He rescues. And I know, I know I'm preaching to someone this morning that needs to hear that good news. Because you have been walking and wallowing and running in shame and, and, and you don't know what is up and down. The lie of Satan and sin has told you that you can never be good enough. That God will never love you. That there is never enough things on earth that will make you feel better. But I've come to say that God says that's not true. That you can trust that when you present yourself to him, he receives you with open arms. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what your circumstances say. It doesn't matter what your friends say or what your family say. He invites you. He does so because he's so much of God. He's not afraid of what you bring him. He doesn't care what you tell him. He's not bothered by your mess. He ain't offended by your mistakes. The holiness of God doesn't just cover all the earth. It covers you too. But that's my time. Before I get back to my seat, I, I, I have to answer the question that I know you're all thinking. How is it that your and my sin is removed? Surely one can't simply continue to put burning coals to one's lips. No, God had someone better in mind. Skip down to verse 13. Like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when fell, the holy seed is the stump. The stump. See, the, the coal in Isaiah's lips was just a foretaste of something else, a precursor to someone greater that would defeat sin and death once and for all. I'm feeling good now. Now I'm having fun. What was painful about Isaiah is now merciful for you. From a stump he rose, and on a tree he died. His name is Jesus. And he died for you, and he died for me. Oh, I like how they say it. They put nails in Jesus' hands. They put nails in his feet. They put a spear in his side. They cast crowns upon his head. They mocked him and said, King of Jews, bring yourself down from the cross. Oh, but he stayed. Why? Because he had you in mind. Friends, this is power. This is majesty. This is humility for all to see. Down in the earth he went. 
And up from the grave, He reigns victoriously. He died until death died. He died until sin apologized. He died until the earth rocked and shaked like a drunken man. Bursting forth, He resurrected. Glory and power and majesty all in the palm of His being as the one true and holy king. Lift thy eyes and see the beauty before you. His name, Jesus the Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. Do as you will. Amen.